0: today is May thirteenth, two 2011 and my guest is William Easterly of New York University bill welcome back to econ talk hey Russ our topic for today is a recent paper very provocative uh, paper you've you've, uh, you've written called benevolent autocrats what is a benevolent autocrat and what does it have to do with economic growth
1: a benevolent autocrat is any leader in a, in a non-democratic society that gets the credit for high economic growth. So I'm thinking like the Lee Kuan Yew gets the credit for a Singapore miracle or Park Chung-hee who gets the credit for South Korea's high growth and the Korean miracle.
0: And there's China.
1: Yeah, now now the everyone's favorite example. Yeah, there's is so many. China. It,
0: it,
1: uh, even to the extent that uh, you know people are starting to talk about a Beijing consensus replacing the Washington consensus in which uh, authoritarian high growth would be the
0: kind of, you know, model to follow. The the Washington consensus was the idea that property rights, rule of law, open markets yield growth, and now we have another view that says that autocrats yield growth, I guess would be the polite way to say it.
1: Right. Autocrats advised by experts yield growth. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, the... Your paper opens with a rather remarkable quote, which I'm afraid I've seen before, but it it bears repeating, a quote from New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman saying, One-party autocracy certainly has its drawbacks, but when it is led by a reasonably enlightened group of people, as China is today, it can also have great advantages that one party can just impose the politically difficult but critically important policies needed to move a society forward in the 21st century. Now, what's your reaction to that?
1: Well, uh uh Tom Friedman is almost too good to be true. He's like a, the perfect caricature of the, the arrogant intellectual who thinks that his ideas are the key to the success of the society that he is living in. <laughs> and uh, the reason he likes uh he likes autocrats so much is that they they have no political constraints on following the advice of brilliant intellectuals like Tom Friedman
0: in theory right in theory they have no constraints one of the
1: um right one of the things, of the things i'm going to examine in the in the paper actually but in the in the sort of fantasy version of the benevolent autocrat they have They have no constraints. They can do whatever they want, and if they follow the advice of the great experts and the intellectual elite, like uh, – personified by Tom Friedman, then they can do all the great things to move a society forward into the 21st
0: century. We'll talk about the probability that that's true, but I I have to mention my favorite part of the quote – well, it's probably that he spelled lead correctly. A lot of people I've noticed spell it L E A D like the um like the metal, but he correctly spelled it L E D. But my my uh the part that I find most striking is this the first sentence which is said in a a certain – I don't know what kind of smoking jacket tone. One-party autocracy certainly has its drawbacks. Yes, right. it does. Uh, right, right. Concentration no. camps, the gulag, those would be uh, two. Right. Fam- famines that kill 10 million people, uh, Yeah, unbelievable. Yes. Uh, some how some of, drawbacks, how
1: yes. Kind of I don't
0: understand. That fascinates me. Yeah. Um, and then yeah. the next part is also worth noting. But when it is led by a reasonably enlightened group of people, as China is today – you could say as China appears to be I mean. I have no intimate knowledge, and I don't even think Thomas Friedman has intimate knowledge. And I assume of the light, the relative enlightenment of the Chinese leaders. I assume he's drawing the the conclusion that they're enlightened from the fact that they are following green policies, which is what the rest of the quote goes on to talk right. about: wind power right. and solar power, electric things, and right, um, right, right. I Although think, he's, he's right.
1: also just praised them for. Wise economic policy in general, as many yeah. others
0: have, of course, yeah. So let's now let's return. Now that we've spent a good four minutes on Thomas Friedman, I wish we had, I wish we could we could spend the whole podcast um, on that quote. But let's yeah. uh, cast a wider net. He's not alone. Uh, there's, as you no, correctly, no. as you beautifully summarized in the paper, it's a widely espoused or at least considered view by academics. Uh, pundits and others. So what are some of the other views that that are similar to Friedman's?
1: Well, I thought the um, I, I give a, a number of quotes from from all kinds of sources, but I thought one of the most sort of possibly representative quote was from uh, a group that came together to produce something called the the World Bank Growth Commission Report. The World Bank spent four million dollars to sort of get all the collected wisdom of literally uh, like two hundred <laughs> academics and other other think tank types um, to give their views on what what causes growth, what to do to raise growth. And uh, four million was turned out to be a pretty high price tag for reaching almost no conclusions <laughs> whatsoever on uh, how to achieve high growth. Uh,
0: because the they the didn't one... ask enough people, Bill. They Only had two hundred. It's like some people say you need the S and P five hundred. You know, why don't have the Dow Jones right. to balance your right. portfolio? But right. some say the right. S and P five hundred. But what about right. the Russell one thousand? You need. They only had two hundred, but they did the best they could.
1: They did the best they could. Yeah. So you know they have these remarkably wishy-washy quotes like uh, you know whatever causes growth to go up today may not cause it to go up tomorrow. <laughs> like that, but the, the one thing that they did seem to feel with a, a very strong consensus conclusion was, and here's the exact quote, was the statement that growth at such a quick pace, meaning uh, 7% GDP growth, which, which would be about 5% per capita growth, you know, incredibly high growth, over such a long period, and they were talking about periods of 25 years or more, requires strong political leadership. Which then, is I, then, I sort of I, then I sort of decoded that, that, that uh, in fact, if you look at their actual examples, uh, all of them except Japan were autocrats. So that was their euphemism for benevolent autocrats with strong political leadership.
0: Now, by the way, the word benevolent is, is somewhat uncertain in these cases, right? But, but it is certainly true that – Many of the most dramatic examples of high growth rates, as you chronicle in the paper, are from undemocratic states that ha- right. that are autocratic, correct? Right. Correct. Singapore, China, Korea, South Korea. Right. Um, right. And a handful of others. Uh, Japan right. would be an exception. Right. Uh, a democracy that, that, is, that managed to sustain high growth for a while. Right. Uh, I say a while, not a long time. But I maybe it is a long time, you could say, right. so that looks pretty convincing that you know all the all the winners are autocrats,
1: right right
0: right what's your response to that
1: uh well, this taps into another thing the paper talks about a lot, which is the that uh, unfortunately, all of us have these what are called with uh, by the unlovely name of cognitive biases that we we have ways of thinking about evidence that leads us systematically to misunderstand sort of, uh, the, the, the way the evidence points. And this is this, this statement that you, this fact that you were just describing is a classic case that we, um, we see, we notice uh, if you're a success, you're an autocrat. So the secret to success must be to be an autocrat. Uh, that's logical. But that was asking the question the wrong way around. We don't want to know what is the probability you're an autocrat if you're a success. We want to know what is the probability that if you are an autocrat, you will be a success.
0: they are not the same thing, but they're which so totally, close. <laughs> they seem like the same thing to our... Totally,
1: our... totally the reverse. So if you're an autocrat, you have not only the great successes of, you know, the of the leak Kuan Yew's, but now you have to factor in the, the Mobutu's and the Mugabe's and, uh, yeah. you know... The, North uh, Korea, not just North South Korea. Korea. And, you know, so... Um, and that that is, you know, once you stop to think about it for 10 seconds, you realize that is the correct probability, of course, that we need to know. What is, what is the chance of success if you are an autocrat? And yet there's this systematic... T- tendency that all the psychologists and behavioral economic literature have documented over and over again that we mix up these probabilities and we, we just simply mix them up we um we think that the first probability that 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 most of the autoc most of the successes are autocrats <laughs> that we we think that that implies that most uh, most autocrats are successes <laughs> of course it does not at all
0: yeah I mean, I, and as much I- as i'm as proud as I am of this program and and the many things I hope listeners have learned, this may be the single most valuable thing that you learn from this uh, entire program—not just this hour, but all of them. Um, it is, for example, <clears throat> in the ta- in the in the book, you have a table, and if you if you if you approach the table um, uh, nakedly and just look at it, you could easily make the mistake again. But I'm going to try to rephrase. I'm going to help the reader read the table, which is easy because the table is not visible. So here's the way I understood it, and you can tell me if I have it right. Nine out of ten of the extraordinary growth stories of the past 40 or 50 years have been autocracies. Right, right. So you think, well, nine out of ten? Wow. Well, obviously, autocracy has a lot to do with growth. Right, right. right. But it turns out of the – how many countries are we talking about? How Uh, many – this is another –
1: 126.
0: Yeah, so of the hundred and how many of them are. I'm sorry, 124. How many of those are aut- autocracies?
1: Uh, autocracies are uh,
0: 89. So there's 89 autocracies. Only nine of them are successful. So you're fooled right. into thinking that because. Right. It turns right. out, right. growing really fast is hard to do. Right. Now you, you right. might then at least say, well, okay, being right. an autocrat doesn't lead to growth, but the only way you could get high growth right used right. to be an autocracy and that would be a legitimate possibility
1: right so it doesn't right. mean it's
0: true right it doesn't mean it right. raises your chances even because you need to know how many democracies there are and right it's very right. hard to keep those two things straight it's fantastically interesting right um, right, statistics. right so then the uh,
1: the rest of the paper goes on to demolish that possibility yeah, so let's talk
0: <laughs> but let's talk about that yeah. so one view would be for those of us who who are anti-autocratic and and right. are skeptical of this this romance uh, about autocracy, uh, we have to face the fact that somehow, even though the odds are small, that being an autocracy can lead to high rates of growth, it did happen nine times out of the 80-whatever, and that's surprisingly large. How did they manage to do it? Right. So uh,
1: there's, there's several ways where you can think about this. So the... The first thing that uh, the, is obviously going on here is just that the the variance of growth outcomes under autocracy is much higher than it is under democracy. So if you're a mature democracy, then you're pretty much guaranteed that you're going to have a growth rate that's pretty close to 2% per capita every year year in and year out uh, with, you know, pretty small variation around that average of 2% per capita year in and year out. Uh, if you're uh in an autocracy, then the variance is much more wide open. You could be at minus two percent you could be at plus six percent and so that's how you get the uh the fact that that you know most of the high growth is under autocracy because you're picking off that high end of an extremely variable you know distribution or to put it in you know much more uh much more instinctive terms. You basically, you can think of autocracy as this very risky bet. It's sort of like you know, take your, take your all your life savings to Las Vegas and it, bet it on black on the roulette wheel, and uh, you could get very very rich, or you could get completely you know penniless after that bet. Not sure so that's, that's, what, that's th- what that's what autocracy could be like. Well,
0: it's more like more like putting it all on one. Uh, on the roulette wheel or 17 because right, right, black right. is at least 50-50. Right, right. It is um, – right. it's not quite 50-50, is it? <laughs> not, not in Las Vegas. But no, um, no, no. I meant in, in okay. autocracies, in growth <laughs> outcomes. The, all the, many of the – as, as we've said, many of the high growth outcomes are autocracies and many of the utterly disastrous outcomes are autocracies. Are the right. utterly disastrous right. ones – Roughly, I don't remember in the table, is it roughly equally numerous or much more numerous?
1: Um, yeah, the, the the big... Well, I, I actually picked, defined uh, kind of catas- catastrophe in a way that you have roughly the same number of big catastrophes as you do big successes. So that would be...
0: Well, so it, turned, like- it turned out
1: to be um, kind of less than minus 0.5% per year decline. So, you know, basically sharp negative growth declines <laughs> Are about as likely as big successes are. So that's that's you're gambling. But then the, the next question is, you know, is it correct to attribute the high variance to these good and bad leaders? And that's been the ah. question that is. That's the key question that has been left unanswered in this debate up to now. So all that we've talked about up to now is already was already well known at least within the economics field. Um, but where I'm trying to push the debate forward is on this last question. Was it are we really justified in attributing high, high and low growth to the good and bad leaders under
0: autocracy? Because then if it's, if it's just random, then it's random. But if it's not right. random, then you just say, well, we look at what the dumb ones did, and we don't do that. And we look right. at what the smart ones did, and we do that. And then we right. could have autocracy as a, as a, a path to, to growth
1: right right and, how does that and we uh, work out well i mean uh, we're we're much more likely to be favorable to the concept of a benevolent autocrat if we do recognize that at least you know some successes these these nine great success stories that you know are hugely stuck in our minds if we do give them the credit to the autocrats for them then we are going to we are going to wind up having this fairly rosy view of at least the possibility of benevolent autocrats but what this paper is arguing is that they don't really. There's really no evidence they even get the credit for that, and that
0: they should get they, the credit that they
1: should get the credit for the for the high growth. And it looks at that a, several different ways. First, um, it turns out that this really high variance of growth under autocracy is actually not between leaders. It's not explained by you know having high growth under some autocratic leaders and low growth under other autocratic leaders that most of the variance the high variance of growth is actually variance within the terms of long serving autocratic leaders and so that really goes against the idea that, that leaders i mean this is getting a little wonky i admit but this I'll is stop if you get too but this is but this is this is serious evidence that it's not The idea that the high variance was due to the leaders, then we would expect, you know, well, there would be some good ones that get the credit for the high growth. So we would expect, you know, very the variance would mostly be driven by the difference between the good leaders and the bad leaders. And so if we just sort of calculate the averages for each leader, then the variance of uh, uh, high variance of growth under autocracy is just going to correspond to the high variance of leader growth averages under autocracy. But it doesn't. Turns out that most of the variance, there, there isn't that much systematic difference between autocratic leaders. Uh, and most of the variance is happening within the terms of leaders. In other words, leaders are starting out good and then going bad, or they're starting out bad and then going good, or, you know, g- good in the middle, bad on either end. You know, there's all kinds of these other patterns. And now it gets harder and harder to say it was really the leader that explains the, the high. The good or bad outcome, if if growth is kind of fluctuating wildly during during their term in office, and on what basis do we attribute the growth to their term in office?
0: Well, you could argue that they they start off stupid, but they get smart. You know, sure yeah. they you know they they tried the uh, you know the um, the, st- the steel. Um, <laughs> smelter in everybody's backyard or whatever, whatever what's right, the word I want right right. the steel foundry in everybody's backyard that turns out to be right, a bad right. idea you, you stop it you try something different right, and then right, when you hit on the right, right thing you, you, know, you get your legs right. under you and then you can just go forward <laughs> is that in right, the data right well no
1: I mean that's essentially what a lot of the benevolent autocrat ideas sometimes when sort of all else fails people will fall back onto purely circular reasoning you know that they'll say uh you know, I, I'm sorry. I just insist on be- believing in benevolent and autocrats. And uh, you know, any any high growth that occurs, I'm going to give to them. And uh, any negative growth that occurs during their term, that was their learning period. And, and you know, it's just you know it, the the hypothesis becomes so infinitely flexible that it just bo- has boiled down to pure circular reasoning.
0: But it could be true. I,
1: I assume they're benevolent because growth is high. I explain high growth because they're benevolent it's just totally circular,
0: but it could be true, right? It could be true that oh yes, yes you know, that we're yes. handicapped in the United States by this foolish two term yes, all of this
1: could be true, and you know to be uh, you know i I certainly wanted to go into this uh, this paper admitting the possibility that it could be true and giving giving the benevolent autocrat hypothesis a fair
0: shake. And how would that turn out? do you think you uh, uh, uh,
1: well you know, I, you know i I'm convinced by the end of the paper that there's no there's no theory or evidence to support benevolent autocrats, but um the part about cognitive biases kind of has the prediction that we're so we're so wedded to these concepts that no matter how much logical argument I throw at you, you're still going to believe in benevolent autocrats. That's That's a kind of ironic uh, feature of this whole debate is that uh, you know the saying that uh, cognitive biases co- uh, help explain why we do believe in benevolent autocrats, and there are many others, like the, you know the um, you know some version of kind of like the Hollywood stereotypical story that we just like to attribute great events to great personalities. You know no, that, no. That's, that's called leadership attribution bias and uh, and that we want, we like to have a hero, you know, things like that that, that cause us to believe in benevolent autocrats. So those, these biases are so strong that um, the prediction of this paper is that this paper, which shows you that benevolent autocrats are false, also predicts that you will continue to believe they are true. <laughs> yeah.
0: there, there's an amazing line in the paper where you note that over 140, I think it was 142 or 145, 140-something factors have been found significant in different growth models.
1: Right, 145. Yes. So
0: that, that's sobering right there. Um, yes,
1: yes, so how so how do the benevolent autocrats actually know how to raise growth when, uh, when the economists are having such a hard time?
0: One of the conclusions of the paper uh, could – one way to, to summarize the conclusion of the paper is that since economists – and the, the Growth Commission you referenced earlier would be one example of it. And you could obviously look more widely. Since economists struggle to systematically understand what causes growth, it's hard to believe that a benevolent autocrat um, would be able to to implement growth uh, in, right. intentionally. Right, right. Um, right. What do you think your opponents would say, your intellectual opponents, the people who 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 did some of those regressions? Found some of those 145 factors and would happily um, pass that on to an autocrat and say I've I found the right recipe. Or who would say that that some autocrats just have a feel for it and you, you want to try to find one of those? You know, it's
1: right. Well, you know, again, that at some point the story becomes sort of circular and non falsifiable, right? That you if you if you have your favorite autocrat who's presided over high growth and that, that one episode. Has many many different explanations, and it's basically impossible to prove on the basis of one episode what caused it or or did not cause it. And so, if someone's really wedded to that concept, it's, it's you know it's impossible to disprove it for one episode. All we can do is look at the whole pattern of the evidence. Um, the the other important pattern in the evidence that I wanted to, that I wanted to highlight in the paper yeah. is that. Um, the The good and bad growth rates that happen under autocracy we also have to take into account that autocracy is is very strongly associated with lots of other features of economies that also predict extremely variable outcomes uh, you know, for these, example so autocracies are usually commodity producers they 're usually oil producers um, I'm, i 'm I'm saying some of the commodity producers are oil producers. Mm-hmm. And so to take oil producers, for example, not only are oil prices incredibly volatile, even output of oil producers is incredibly volatile. So some of our highest growth rates are oil producers, uh, and, you know, other oil producers have catastrophically negative growth rates. Um, And then there's, there's... Lots of other features that are correlated with autocracy like, uh, you know, low financial development, lack of diversification of the economy. These are mostly agricultural, low-income economies with no financial ability to diversify risk. So you have, you know, an oscillation between, you know, booms with good harvests and good times and, and catastrophic busts with, with bad times and no financial ability to hedge risk. And then, you know, these are also economies that are prone to political earthquakes like civil wars. And uh, civil wars, if you had a civil war early in the period we're considering, and then you, you know, you sort of destroy the economy, and then there's rapid reconstruction after the war, that predicts high growth. Or if the civil war happened in the latter half of the period and destroyed a previously prosperous economy, that predicts low growth. So, you know, autocracy is this, this big fact that autocracies have... Very, very good outcomes or very, very bad outcomes. That's really concealing the fact that autocracy is just standing in for low-income economies with lots of lots of other features that also predict very variable outcomes.
0: Yeah, I'd like to look a little more at the high end, though. And I, I, obviously, as you point out, um, I'll quote um, Hayek in the Play of the Century Rap video when he talks about the question where the depression cured. Whether well, World War II cured the Great Depression and he says, wow, one data point and you're jumping for joy. Uh there is a tendency to take one data point that could be very unrepresentative, it's an outlier, it it's fluky, it's got other factors that aren't that are the true causes, as you point out. But it is fascinating to me that China is um is thriving as much as it is. And I want I wonder if we could dig a little deeper into that. In particular, th- there are, to me, a couple issues that I think even the the defenders of of Chinese economic policy have have to look at. And as you point out, a lot of people claim successes as their own, regardless of their ideology. So, mm-hmm. market oriented folks will say China's growing because they're liberalizing. Uh, auto- mm-hmm. Friends of autocrats will say China's growing because they steer the economy from the top down, uh, right. or they right. play with right. their currency, or whatever whatever's their favorite. Policy to shore, but but right. it is interesting that China appears to be growing. So the first question I, I would ask two questions, and see if you have any thoughts on these. One is: Is that growth real, in, in the sense that it is it uh, true growth? And by that, we have an enormous migration of people from the countryside to the city, where previous economic activity was outside the market. And now it's going to be measured by the market if they're measuring it accurately or as best they can. So you'd expect there to be strong measured growth even if the actual growth is smaller because we've ignored the lost home production that isn't counted officially. Right. That would be right. one issue. Right. You also have the issue that when you migrate from countryside to city, you have increased the the chances for specialization. That has nothing to do with governance uh, from the top or the bottom. Um and then the, the next question would be, is it sustainable? Yeah. Is, is it yeah. really plausible that they're, quote, steering things masterfully, given that they might have an utter collapse uh, any day now?
1: Right. What are your right. thoughts on right. that? Yeah, those are, those are two very important questions. Uh, so the first one, you know, and this is another thing that I think undermines the benevolent autocrat idea, is that the... Uh, Another characteristic of autocratic low-income economies is that they have statistical departments that are either incompetent or dishonest. Yeah, corrupt <laughs> and, uh, and so you would expect that uh, statistical departments that are very bad at measuring things are going to have very noisy growth rates. And to make it more pointed, in the case of China, there's obvious political incentives to exaggerate the measured growth rate. So you know, I I don't think, and and from what I'm not a China hand myself, but from those I've talked to, I I understand there is a there is a strong camp arguing that Chinese growth is exaggerated, uh, that there is some some fudging going on, exaggerating Chinese growth. And remember, a lot of it's it's not hard to fudge the growth because there's still a large non-market part of the economy where we have no idea what what you know what the Stuff being produced is worth uh, as far as fair market value.
0: Yeah, is there still, you know, I'm not a China hand either. And I, I will. Yeah, there's pro-
1: still, um, you know, state owned enterprises yeah. that are still producing a lot of stuff. And, I think uh, they're
0: building a lot of stuff. And,
1: and there's still a lot of investments yeah. that may just be crap, you know, so yeah. it may just be the growth of crap. <laughs> yeah,
0: but are, but they're put uh, into now, the books at high value and therefore it looks right. like growth. And-
1: right. Now, I I do not believe that that explains all of the Chinese uh, miracle and the rapid growth. That would be going too far. Yeah. So there is, there is really something going on there. Um, but you know, then that and and what is going on? Well, you know, I, like you said, there's uh, lots of different stories you could tell. I mean, I think it's a fairly straightforward case of of change that you had this a movement from this totalitarian. Destructive government, uh, uh, which itself was following decades of political chaos in China, and then you switch to a government that, even if you don't give it any credit for doing anything positive, at the at least stopped being horribly destructive. And then you combine that with, you know, this uh, remarkable overseas Chinese diaspora that has showed the potential of. Of you know, the Chinese to participate in world trade and achieve huge gains by taking advantage of the, the high demand in, being produced by those democratic market economies to sell them things, and that's I think it's just a change of story. You go from a uh, psychotic, horrible, negative government to one that is just not so psychotic and negative, and and that, and that gives you high, high positive growth and. Part- and the opportunity to participate in uh, world markets. Uh, and then, you know, on the on the last point you mentioned, is the growth sustainable? So this is the most underappreciated and yet one of the most robust facts in all of empirical growth economics is that growth miracles never last. They will last for a while. Some of them will last longer than we expect, but they, in general, they don't last. Uh, most of them don't last very long at all. Uh, most of them only last five years or seven years. Uh, a very few last, you know, 25 years, like China's has now. Um, but all of the studies suggest that growth uh, is is a process that uh, you can get uh, you can get a string of high growth for a while, but it just it just doesn't last. Uh, there's very st- strong what we call mean reversion in growth rates that you will those countries that are above average, above the world average, are going to move back to the world average sooner or later. And that's an overwhelming statistical tendency in the data that's been documented by every study we have. So that, you know, think of all the previous growth miracles. You know, do you remember the Brazilian miracle that yeah. happened from 1967 to about 1975 when, you know, Brazil was growing at 10% per year? Um Who remembers the Ivorian miracle? You know, now now Ivory Coast is everyone's favorite byword for a basket case. But, you know, in the 60s and 70s, Ivory Coast was a a booming economy and and created this gleaming, you know, city, Abidjan, full of, you know, gleaming skyscrapers just like Shanghai. Well, perhaps not just like Shanghai, but just, you know, sort of analogous to Shanghai for the 60s and 70s. And uh, you know whatever happened to the Ivorian miracle? Well, uh, very very sad and tragic things happened to the Ivorian miracle. I'm not necessarily predicting that for China, but the the point is, is that the overwhelming evidence is that miracles don't last. That at the very least, you go back towards towards average growth, back to the, all the. China's predecessors, as East Asian tigers, have already gone back to sort of average world growth.
0: Yeah, when you were talking about Brazil and Ivory Coast, I'm thinking about Japan, which is the right. is right. the big, right, attractive story of of my uh, of my youth, which was right. Well, Japan's right. growing; they're growing faster than us. They must be doing something wise that we're not doing. What is that? It, it's yeah. the government yeah, business. The, you know, we should emulate them. We could be like right. them, and
1: exactly all the all the same sort of hysterical things now being said about China were being said about Japan right up to the very last moment in the you know in the period around 1990 when suddenly Japan stopped growing and reverted to being a very mediocre growth rate and has stayed at that ever
0: since. Yeah, they're uh, they're struggling, and we we're struggling too. Uh, uh, we may s- struggle for a while. Uh, it's hard to. Very hard
1: to yeah. know, obviously. Yeah. Well, you know, that's um, you now it's sort of a tragic fact of um, the history of studying economic development is that we give sort of way too much importance to you know very small amounts of of, of data. So it had, it had a huge impact on the history of development economics, for example. That. Uh, in its formative years in the 30s and 40s, what everyone remembered was the rapid growth of the Soviets under the five-year plans and the Great Depression and the market economies. And so development started off being much more about Soviet central planning than it was about market economics. And uh, something like that in a much tamer, less severe version is going on now with the crisis and uh, coming out of the crisis. And the market economies in the West and uh, China's rapid
0: growth. Yeah, it, it is a. It, let's talk a little bit about the cognitive bias. It, it reminds me a little bit of the, um, you know, the 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 neighbor who um, either runs up an enormous credit card bill, or or maybe maybe he's embezzling, you know, money from his firm. But all of a sudden, he's, he's putting an addition on his house, and he's got a nicer car. And you look at your life, and you think, well, boy, I got to be more like him. Uh, without right, thinking right. about what that means,
1: right, right, <laughs> um, right.
0: But it looks good. Hey, his right. car is bigger than mine, or his house is right. nicer than mine, right, right, um, right. And
1: you know, just uh, we um, we we have another world of experience, which uh, somehow we're able to treat more sensibly than we are economics, which is sports. You know, if we if a player st- starts off the year hitting five hundred. Or even 400, which many, you know, many many players do early in the year because the uh, baseball season. Of course, I'm talking about, uh, you know, if if you've only had uh, 20 at bats, then of course, in a small sample of 20 at bats, a few players are going to get 10 hits out of 20 at bats. But nobody could sustain that for the whole course of the season, and we know that we don't expect anyone to finish up the season batting 500. And yet, you know that somehow we're not able to appreciate that same principle at work in economic growth, that if you take a very small number of observations, yes, some countries are going to be able to record a remarkably high growth rate average over seven years. You know, they'll be able to record 10% GDP growth over seven years. But we don't expect uh, anyone's going to grow for 100 years at 10% GDP growth. It should be exactly analogous to the baseball hitter hitting, you know, five hundred after twenty eight bats, And yet somehow we fail to draw that analogy. We get it right in sports and we can't get it right in something that matters a lot more, which is economic growth.
0: Well, I, I think we don't I think we have the same problem in sports actually. I think the problem we have in sports is we we look at the coach who has the coach of the Redskins now, Mike Shanahan, he's got two Super Bowl rings. He also had um a quarterback named Elway who was really good. Without right. Elway, he hasn't won any. Right. So is it, right. was he right. the genius? Was it Elway? Right. He's right. tough. Yeah. He's, a, he's a disciplinarian. So people say that's yeah. what we yeah. need. Yeah, there is. A, Look there it is worked. A, it worked in Denver, and then right. uh, all of a sudden it's not working. What's right. different? Right. And the answer is, well, he's got different players. You know, it's but we attribute so much to the person at the top. Right. You know, right. Yeah. That that certainly is is the
1: same in sports and in economics.
0: Yes, I agree. It's um. Yep. There is a certain romance we have my my colleague Dan Klein calls it the people's romance um that government in general can help us but I think it's more than that I really think it is the the top down I, I think it probably I'm going to throw out a horrible theory here but I'm just going to say it anyway I think it starts in the womb you know um in the womb you're kind of relying on a top down process um and it lasts for a long time right it's a huge portion of your of your life, it, it can be, you know, at current lifespans, it's it's roughly twenty, fifteen to twenty percent is spent dependent on others, and so it's very hard for us to think that salvation could come from ourselves or a different process rather than mm-hmm. just top down.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of reasons why we tend to favor top down things. We also, you now we we want to have we see a tragic problem and we. We want to know, like, the exact course of action that will solve the problem. And the top-down people are happy to tell you what that course of action is, even though they have no evidence and a miserable track record.
0: The and curious the, task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know right, about what right. they imagine they can design. My favorite higher yes, quote, and those yes. of you out there in the pool, yes, it's one roughly of my favorites, one of my favorites, about too. 38 minutes into the podcast before it got mentioned. You actually have a... a um, a quote from Kenneth Arrow that's quite similar that I'd never heard before. Mm-hmm. Do you have that handy in Uh the paper?
1: Just, yes, let me just look it up on the iPad while we continue talking. Um, yeah, it's, um, you know, Arrow also had, to, and Arrow, of course, we, we think of as not being in the same ideological place as as Hayek and uh, of course, Hayek, I think, is very uh, very uh, unfairly treated and being sort of ideologically boxed in when he really spans a lot of different, uh, a lot of different ideological camps.:
0: Yeah sometimes he gets called a conservative right. sometimes he's right. called the father of the welfare state because he once wrote that health insurance might be a good idea, uh, so that right. means that anything he do- anything done in the area of entitlements is fine because Hayek said so uh, right. it's a strange. Strange uh, conclusion to leap to,
1: right, right, right. I mean, the idea of spontaneous order, you know, now nowadays is has much more right. appeal across the whole political spectrum than it did when Hayek was writing, because you know we have the internet,
0: yeah,
1: just sort of giving us a huge example of spontaneous order. There was a, a wonderful economist who told a story about an investor who went to France in the early days of the internet and. And, the, and he was selling an internet-based company, and the French investors wanted to know, well, who's the president of the internet? Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, uh, there is no president. It just, the internet is just, you know, this bottom-up, uh, self-organizing thing, and, and the French thought he was completely crazy, and, and, this must, and it was clear they were not going to invest with him if he was peddling such a crazy idea. So in the end, he told them that he was president <laughs> of the internet, and he got the investors to invest.
0: Is this an apocryphal story, Bill? No, it <laughs> I think it's in uh, Paul Sebright's book. It reminds me of that Chinese, visiting Chinese communists or Russian communist story about who's in charge of whatever it was. And, right, um, right, right. I remember that one, but it's a good one also. But I, I wonder, if they probably are both true, actually, instead of both being false. Right. Um, anyway, right. Any, any luck with that arrow quote?
1: Uh, my iPad is slow, actually. Okay. Uh, I think I'm almost there. Yep, here we go. I've got it. Okay, so here's the error quote. The notion that through the workings of an entire system, effects may be very different from and even opposed to intentions is surely the most important intellectual contribution that economic thought has made to the general understanding of social processes.
0: Yeah, it's a great quote. Um, yeah. I, I believe I have said that last part myself, but um, it's nice to hear that Kenneth Arrow agrees. It makes me happy. Um now you have just if you if 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 you were a listener to this podcast uh and you hadn't heard much else about growth uh we're talking to Bill Easterly he's a leading authority arguably the leading authority on economic growth there, there might be some people who disagree with that but everybody would put him in the top 10 maybe the top 5 maybe the top 3 even if you don't like what he says and here he is telling us that we really don't have any clue We've got Bill Easterly saying this. We've got the 200-person Growth Commission of the World Bank saying it. We really don't understand the processes uh, that lead to growth, and we certainly don't understand the role that political institutions play uh, in growth, although we might occasionally want, them to be, want it to be otherwise. And yet you just finished teaching a class on growth this mm-hmm. semester, a uh, graduate course. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do we know? Uh, other than that, we don't know what we'd like to know. What is there to say other than all the main theories are wrong? Is there anything
1: well, you positive know, yeah.
0: that we can conclude? <laughs> I'm looking for the uplift here. Yes, yes. Or knowledge. Either I, one. I, I,
1: happy to supply some uplift at the end. So you know, and of course we don't we don't have the luxury of of not choosing. <laughs> we have to choose. You know, there are, there are alternative. Camps or alternative viewpoints. You know, should we do central planning? Should we do free market? Should we do, you know, government picking winners, industrial policy, or should we let the market pick the winners? And so, you know, in the end, we have to choose. And you know, I think um, Hayek's one of the reasons I like Hayek is that his insight was. And and in a way, Hayek predicted this growth ignorance that uh, that has now become so visible in economics, because he said, you know, that uh, growth is about innovation. It's about uh, the emergence of what we sh- what we want when we see it. We don't even know ahead of time what we're going to to want through the you know independent and competitive efforts of many. And he's using, Hayek is using our lack of knowledge as the best possible argument for a decentralized market system. That, you know, if, if there is no central authority who knows what to do to raise the growth rate, uh, then let the decentralized market system find the new innovations that will lead to economic success. That's That's Hayek's big insight. And yep. of course, it's, it's, we know it very well in the form of the invisible hand for private goods in the free market but i think it also applies to more generally society and individual liberty if we you know let's not uh, give a lot of power to any centralized authorities because they they don't have any expert knowledge on which they can make growth go up or down let's leave things to the spontaneous efforts of not only you know private market suppliers and businesses and entrepreneurs but also social entrepreneurs and political entrepreneurs under a system of liberty in which you know you get rewarded positively for things that have a social return and you get penalized for things that have a negative social return
0: Well, this past sunday um in the new york times book review francis fukuyama reviewed the uh new edition of the of the constitutional liberty and Fukuyama made the claim that Hayek is not Hayekian, which is quite a quite a claim. Um, right, right, but his claim, right. which is an interesting argument, is that along the lines you just said. Well, pe- there's trial and error. People do the best they can, and they stumble toward stuff because they don't have the cookbook or the manual. And the way I read Fukuyama's uh, c- critique in this section of his of his review was that, well, governments can do the same thing. They can they can lurch forward and and sometimes they, they lurch forward successfully, and they find good policies. And yes, you know, sometimes they fail, and they and they they can learn the way on. They can be entrepreneurial. That's the way I took his critique of, of Hayek's defense of of market process. And you disagreed. Why? Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, what he's totally missing is that um,
0: yeah. If we're talking
1: about a centralized government trying to achieve a a whole society wide outcome, then. That kind of knowledge of governments what to do simply does not exist. Whereas the kind of knowledge that Hayek said was saying does exist is the kind of dispersed local knowledge, which people have the incentive in a decentralized system of liberty. They have the incentive to apply their local knowledge to solving local problems, and that kind of problem solving system uh, works when you when when there is no reliable centralized knowledge, but what. Well, well, what the society can do, but there's lots of useful, localized knowledge, then the, the system you want to go for is the system that relies on individual liberty and, and lets people you know, get rewarded for their contributions to society and, and you know, also has the flip side of penalizing them for anything negative they do to, to society. That's the, those are the rules of individual liberty.
0: Couldn't we incentivize bureaucrats to be more successful?
1: Good luck with that. <laughs> uh, you no, know, I think there is. You know, I'm, of course, there is a role for government. You know, that's another caricature that people throw at uh, Hayek and other similar not-minded people. That uh, you know, no role for government. But of course, there's a role for government. Of course, there are public goods. Um, and and yes. Um, the, there are feedback and accountability systems under a, 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 in a free society uh, based on individual liberty, where any uh, politician who does a really lousy job supplying public goods has to answer to voters. Uh, I think that tends to work somewhat better at um, the decentralized municipal level more than it does at the national level. But
0: have you ever lived you know, in Chicago? No. Maybe, okay. Maybe, maybe in small towns. You got a small. You got a, you <laughs> got a small
1: data center. <laughs> maybe in smaller. <laughs> maybe in suburbs of Chicago. Yeah, they got their But um, you know, yes, the democratic feedback mechanisms uh, could could make possible some some system of 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 innovation and trial and error. In fact, they they have. You know, some of the great successes in public goods like you know cleaning up municipal water supplies. I think those, those happen because of democratic feedback mechanisms, but it it is a much cruder mechanism than the, the market mechanism. So you don't want to turn over the whole market economy to the government because you're you're substituting a a very crude, bad, badly calibrated feedback system in in democracy for a very finely calibrated system in a in a market market feedback you know decentralized free market feedback system
0: you know i made a i was joking a minute ago about chicago but but i let me make a serious comment along those lines and, and get your reaction. There is a general assumption a presumption i should say there's a presumption that municipal local control works more effectively than national control, and that you mm-hmm. should therefore uh, decentralize even to the extent you can the provision of public goods to local areas where – to local authorities where there's, in theory, more control. Mm -hmm. I think there's less control potentially in local areas. Um, I understand the presumption, but it it seems to me – and this to me plays into the cognitive bias part in a a maybe um, hypothetical. I'm just, again, speculating here, but I hadn't thought about it. It's quite interesting. I don't – most people don't pay any attention to their local um, elections. Uh, they don't pay much attention to local outcomes. In, yeah, my, yeah. in my, I live in Montgomery County in Maryland. Yeah. We have yeah. a it's, – it's hard to believe, but we have a monopoly on taxi services. It's – if you want to drive a cab in Montgomery County, you have to be – I'm not even going to remember. I'm not even gonna, I know the name. I'm not going to say it. But you have to be a member of this company, and that company, strangely enough, gives a lot of money to the head of the county council. Now, I know that. Um, right. Right. Do most of my fellow Montgomery County citizens know it?
1: Yeah. I don't think yeah. they do. And,
0: and part of the reason – and it might not matter either way. It's a little little taste of autocracy in our uh, – it's more efficient. There's only one. You yeah. don't have to wasteful yeah. competition. Uh, strangely enough, they're often late. Uh, but the – th- my argument is, is that there's no glory. There's not much glory in, in local politics and so we don't spend a lot of time fascinated by the county council or the – head of the uh, county government we spend a lot of time fascinated by the president who's going to run against him yeah we invest our hopes and dreams in this Well, the more top down the better because the more power they'll have and, and but these local guys eh, who's paying attention and the answer is not too many and so they can get away with a lot
1: well you know i i think i hear i hear what you're saying and i agree with uh you know those those examples of democratic failure but i think there's another bias that we have that we Put too much emphasis on the elections component of democracy, and we forget all the other things that can go on in a democracy so Good anything point. that that people really do care about i mean the the you know i I used to live in Montgomery county, I lived in Tacoma Park, which was a particularly vigorous uh, <laughs> vigorous uh, activist community yep. and you know my my personal favorite example is that I one day picked up the phone and Called my city councilwoman Kathy Porter, who later became mayor of Tacoma Park, and I said, "Hey Kathy, I, I have this gigantic pothole outside of my house, and you so, know, the, the next day Tacoma Park Public Works came by and filled the pothole, and you know, that's that's the kind of thing that I think
0: um, that's true. we're we're
1: ignoring when we obsess about elections. I think there's you know anything that citizens really do care an awful lot about, they are going to find a way in a democratic system to get heard. And there is there is lobbying, and there is uh, there is there are all these ways that you can get her to fix anything that you really do care an awful lot about, and that's that's not reflected at all in, in the, the fixation on elections that we have with uh, with our our usual analyses of democracy.
0: That's yeah, a that's a great point. Um, I in um, John Mueller's book, uh, "Capitals and Democracy," and Ralph's pretty good grocery. I think he, he was talking the book was written I want to say in the nineties. He was talking about Mexico and he said, you know, the PRI party wins every year, every election, so Mexico's a dictatorship really. It's not really much of a of a of a democracy. But that's really only on election day. The other three hundred and sixty-four days a year, there's a lot of political forces pushing that party in particular directions if they wanna stay in power. And yeah, we've neglected yeah. that point. Yeah. Let's close with that. We, we've accepted through most of this conversation that there is such a thing as an autocrat. But of course right. Right. Uh, you know my favorite counterexample is that Adolf Hitler in the middle of, um, it was the, middle of the war, uh, a, a bunch of, Jewi- of uh, German housewives uh, protested in Berlin against the treatment. Either they had Jewish husbands. I can't remember what it was. And they got their way. <laughs> yeah. uh, he didn't yeah. just say, hey, I'm the dictator. I do whatever I want. Even Stalin and Hitler and Mao couldn't do, quote, whatever they want. They could do a lot of things that they wanted that were right. you know, horrifyingly right. uh, tragic and, and destructive. But
1: right. they have
0: right. political forces, whether it's within the army, uh, whether it's in, within the populace. Um, there right. is political right. capital that those people have to shepherd even when they're autocrats, what we call autocrats.
1: Right, right. Yeah, they um – I think that's the other big flaw in the benevolent autocrat theory: is that we have this incredibly simplistic idea that, that you know the autocrats have desire high growth and they have are totally unconstrained in being able to reach high growth. When really, what's going on under, under autocracy is there's like strategic interaction. You know, it's a big game being played in between all the players, only one of whom is the the autocratic leader, and there's potential you know revolutionaries and demonstrators and Elite power holders, and there's this military. complicated game and the military and and you know the outcomes are also often unintentional but um, the, the The difference between the unintentional autocracy and the unintentional market is that there's no mechanism in autocracy to make sure the unintentional outcome is a good one huh. yeah, <laughs> so the unintentional outcomes can often be you know disastrous outcomes
0: you reference. Uh, in the, in the paper, you referenced the work of Bruce at and mosquito, your colleague at NYU, mm-hmm. who you mm-hmm. have interviewed about his his work on this. Uh, he talks about the selectorate, the people who have control over who's going right. to be the leader, and they obviously wield a lot of power. Right. And once right. there's a lot of them, you start to get into a question of what they want as if that was a single thing, and they don't want a single thing. Right. And that right. is an emergent process as well. Right, right. Uh, a minute ago, when I asked you about what we know, um, you took a Hayekian route. Right. Uh, I'm sure I'd enjoy being a student in your class, but if I were a student in someone else's class, <clears throat> perhaps at your university or perhaps at a different one, um, they get a different story, um, maybe less agnostic than you than you are about most things. Um, do you think there's a consensus – at the beginning of our conversation, you suggested almost – I think you suggested literally there was a consensus that we don't know anything you think that is the right. consensus in the academic field called development economics with now a well, lot of romance about experiments maybe but
1: well you know i mean I, I i confess that i have a little bit of a weakness for over overdoing this ignorance point because just cuz i uh, you know i get confronted with so many people who are are have so much excessive confidence in how much we do know uh, but you know, the reality is, it's, of course, it's not uh, it's not total ignorance. Uh, you know, what what is the field? Of development economics is just economics. You know, it's just what what do we know as economists? We know we we do know a lot of things that work in the long run. Even though we can't reliably predict that they will give you a six percent growth rate next year, we do know that if you use if you take advantage of good economics, you will do well in the long run. If you realize gains from trade, gains from specialization, uh, you know, a comparative advantage. All, all these principles; um, these are these are ways in which you can get a lot out of a little. And what is the system that does that? It's a, a market system that uh, lets people trade and specialize and realize their own comparative advantage. So, you know, I'm not really saying that we uh, that economics is useless. Far from it. I'm saying. Um, yeah it what what we don't have is a kind of specialized the the kind of specialized centralized knowledge that would allow a some central authority to achieve a given society wide outcome but what we do have is a set of principles which are basically the principles that tell us how how individual liberty is going to work out if you design institutions to allow individual liberty to flourish, then the reason that individual liberty leads pragmatically to prosperity in the long run are all of these principles of gains from trade and gains from specialization and, and all of that that we have learned, uh, you know, from our from kindergarten in economics. So that economics does still work. I, I'm a firm believer in that.
0: But how we get there from here is—is is that the tricky part? You know, Why is the it's, it's Washington being... Consensus not a consensus anymore?
1: Well, you know, I think there's um, confusion between principles and application. Uh, I think the principles we're very clear about, uh, and I, I think there's even a consensus within a lot of uh, economists about those principles, even though there's some, you know, there's, there's differing views on the extent of, of say, government. Government action or something. There's, there's actually a pretty wide consensus among economists. And actually, the Washington, original Washington Consensus, if you just took it as a state of principles, is very innocuous. I mean, it would be hard to imagine that you could get many people to disagree with the principles that are in the Washington Consensus about, you know, don't have gigantic government deficits and debt, don't have super high inflation, you know, let markets set the prices, mostly don't have any kind of gross
0: interference in markets. Rule mm-hmm. of law is a good idea, private right. property works. Right. So I think, you know,
1: the, the reason that it failed as As a Washington Consensus is is what was implied in those words, Washington Consensus. There was some elite group in Washington that was going to impose these, not as principles, but in they were going to decide the practical applications of these principles through IMF and World Bank loans in Bolivia and Ecuador and Zambia and Zimbabwe and and Philippines. And and then, you know, there was sort of this xenophobic populist backlash against this you know, foreign experts who frankly did not uh, did not really know enough about these economies to know how to apply these principles to these economies. That's, I think that's why the Washington Consensus failed It's in the application stage, not, a, not as
0: principles. So you don't think it's I – mean, when I think about it, I think of it more of as an interaction problem, that there's culture, there's institutions, and then there's these principles. If you just apply the principles without the other two, the culture and the institutions, they don't work very well. So if you're – your yeah, own. I mean the
1: principles. The principles certainly have to include the, the institutional rules that uh, that make markets work, uh, and culture plays a role in supporting those institutional rules. You know, that if a, if you have a culture that promotes kind of individual responsibility and trustworthiness, that kind of supports the the in, the institutional rules that can be also formalized legally to support contracts that you need to be able to enforce in order to realize gains from trade so that's that's the underpinning of of the principles that you need to make them operational but it still it still comes down to just you know economists do I think economists have we have spent 200 years since Adam Smith you know kind of honing this body of knowledge which still is a very useful body of knowledge about what are the principles of prosperity
0: so, if you were in charge of, um, if you were, if if you were in Zimbabwe and and um, Mr. Mugabe took a real uh, liking to you and thought you were a swell fellow and, and seemed to be, he, he'd always liked NYU and he, he just he thought he thought the cover of your last book was really nice and he says, so tell me one thing to do here. So do. This is a serious question. I'm joking about the Mugabe know, part. No, no, I know it's a serious question. The serious question, I, the serious question this is. It's the question that I
1: used to be asked all, all the time right. at the so World Bank.
0: Can you do something productive? You know, we've talked about the pretense of knowledge and, and how little we know. Right. Could you right. comfortably and confidently make suggestions for that economy at the margin, or would you find that to be a very an unbearable situation?
1: Well, I mean, the first thing I would tell him is. Um, you know, don't hire some, uh, you know, white guy from NYU who knows nothing about Zimbabwe. Hire, you know, some seasoned politicians with, uh, something at stake in the game of, uh, of policy reform to implement the policy. And in fact, um, you know, even, even as terrible as the Mugabe government is, there is, uh, this, a uh, finance minister, actually, I, I had the honor of meeting at NYU recently, who did successfully bring down the hyperinflation, eliminated the hyperinflation in Zimbabwe through, you know, standard monetarist.
0: Yeah, stop printing money this,
1: would uh, be... Stop, stop printing yeah, money. Yeah, that would be my
0: first. You know,
1: um, uh, introduce the dollar as a means of exchange and get rid of the domestic currency. You know, that's, um, that, that is the trick, getting rid of inflation. And uh, I think... It worked much better because an insider did it than, than it would have worked as a
0: you know coercive outsider coming in doing it. And would you continue down that path of, of suggestions? Would you have more to suggest? Yeah, I
1: mean, I the, I think the the suggestions are always just going to be you know find get kind of well get local people who. Um, who so know how to play the political game of actually making things happen in the society, and know what the, the relevant institutions and political constraints are in the society, and then have have them apply good economics to the society. You know, it's like I think the act of um, economic reform, the the art of economic reform, is really um, figuring out a way in which you apply. Econ 101 to local conditions, where you have to have someone who's very knowledgeable of local conditions.
0: My guest today has been William Easterling. Bill, thanks for being part of Econ Talk.
1: My pleasure, Russ. Take care.
0: This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to EconTalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast